Hello, I'm Peter McMillan, the Chief Executive Officer of MT Shelter, and you're watching or listening to another episode of Sharing the Couch. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the lands of the Larrakia people here in Darwin, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and to emerging leaders as well. I'd also like to extend a very warm welcome to any other First Nations people who may be watching or listening into this broadcast across Australia. Welcome. Before we begin, I'd like to advise viewers that this episode of Sharing the Couch will be discussing aspects of domestic, family and sexual violence. This content may be distressing and triggering for some viewers. You may wish to switch to a previous episode of Sharing the Couch if that's the case. At the end of this episode, we will reference resources that can support anyone who may need support. It's now an absolute pleasure to welcome to Sharing the Couch, Annabelle Daniel, OAM. As CEO of Women's Community Shelters, Annabelle Daniel has worked with local communities around New South Wales to establish and open five shelters in as many years at Hornsby, Worcester, Castle Hill, Penrith and Bayside. She has collaborated with a range of organisations, individuals and stakeholders from the community and all levels of government to achieve change in the field of homelessness for women and children. Annabelle is continuing this work to establish further shelters throughout New South Wales and is already working with a further four communities towards new shelters. Annabelle has been a leader in the sector for 20 years, working in private enterprise, the Australian government and the community sector. Prior to joining Women's Community Shelters as Chief Executive Officer, Annabelle was a senior leader in the Department of Human Services, overseeing the Child Support Program. A key role in Annabelle's career was as manager of ELSI, Australia's longest established women's shelter, providing services and support to women and children experiencing homelessness and escaping domestic violence. Annabelle trained as a lawyer with specific expertise in discrimination and family law. She has extensive experience in administrative decision-making for the Australian government, including conducting complex investigations for the Commonwealth Ombudsman. Annabelle has also significant board positions in charitable, and not-for-profit organisations in diverse fields, including community development, fundraising and the arts. Annabelle is a recipient of the Order of Australia Medal for her contribution to the community sector. Is also the chair of DV New South Wales and a member of the National Women's Safety Alliance, as well as achieving many other significant awards and recognitions. It's an absolute pleasure, Annabelle, to welcome you to Sharing the Couch. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm really delighted to be here. And um, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm actually coming from Gadigal land today um, and pay my respects to, to the elders past and present also of the Larrakia, um, on whose land I recently had the most immense privilege to spend time. And now I'm just conspiring as to how quickly I can get back there. <laughs> Wonderful, Annabel. So great you can join us. And I've got to say, out of the many people that I've spoken to on sharing the couch, I don't think I've seen... Had any other one on the couch has been so, so colourful and had such a colourful backdrop? I think you take the prize for that, hands down. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to take the prize for that. It's actually one of the things that, um, that I use to keep me colour is something <laughs> I use to keep me positive and optimistic in the space that we work in, which is, you know, not always a positive and optimistic space. So well, I, know, I know that Kate Colvin and absolutely, I know that Kate Colvin and David Pearson probably get the prize for the most colourful glasses, but you get the best backdrop by a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Annabelle, thank you for joining us. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your story? So uh, I, I mentioned in, in the uh, opening uh, words that you're a, a trained lawyer. Uh, can you take us through, you know, your you final years at school, thinking about what impact you want to do for a career? You went into yeah, look, law? 
Um, I went through about 16 different phases of things that I thought that I wanted to do. You know, when I was, I wanted to be a marine biologist when, when Jacques Cousteau was all over the telly. Um, I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to be a languages teacher. Um, but then it was actually my best friend, who is still my best friend, who decided that she wanted to do law at the end of uni. And I thought, oh, she's really cool. I really admire her. I'm going to do the same thing. Um, and it ended up that she didn't do it then. And I did. And so it was it was really interesting. But I did gravitate towards, you know, I think I think what of what of what tend to be seen as the more social justice kind of subjects, you know, the the discrimination in the law and family law. Um, but I did get very sucked into the idea that the way to be successful if you're a law student was to go and work for one of the big firms. Um, and I was successful in getting a graduate position. And I did that for about a year and I realised very quickly I was a square peg in a round hole. Um, and so I, I kind of pulled the pin on that and, and really... Um, had, had quite a struggle career-wise for a few years and, and just went back to something I'd been doing um, while I was at uni, um, but did it full-time instead. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I actually joined the Australian Public Service and, and really put that law degree to use, um, working in the, in the child support agency in and around issues of the transfer of maintenance between separated parents. Um, you know, whenever you're dealing with people's money and their kids, you're obviously right at the heart of some pretty sensitive topics. Um, and, and obviously domestic and family violence played a role there. So I wrote some policy, learnt an awful lot about service delivery and then went to the Commonwealth Ombudsman for a while after that. And um, it was mm. out of that opportunity that the LC1 emerged. Yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to talk mm. about Elsie in just a moment. So it's interesting when you mentioned you realised you're a square peg in a round hole. It's not a very nice feeling. Mm. I think a lot of us have been in those situations throughout our careers before. And important, I guess, to, to have the courage to recognise that and say, I need to make the change rather than keep doing what we know isn't good for us. Mm, I, th I think so. And I think, you know, if I look back now, that's that's probably a little bit of a theme. Um, I've, I've always been reasonably good um, at taking the risk in, in making a jump from something because I always, I, I just know very much that you regret the things that you don't do more than the things you do do. Um, you know, you've, you've got to put yourself in the way of change um, and in the way of, of exploring opportunities. And if you back yourself, you know, good things come of it. And when, when you're in that stage, and that was early on in your career, I guess, when you, and that's a very successful uh, outcome to be working for one of the big law firms, obviously, uh, you know, mm. that's a that's a pretty uh, significant achievement in itself. And, and at a young age, I'm I'm thinking, you know, do you do you do you have those moments where you're wondering, am I the problem, or is it the culture that I'm working in the problem? And I'm without necessarily going in, because a lot of people <laughs> make successful careers in that, and and they they're a great fit for that, and some people aren't. What what was some of the thinking for you in there? Was it around beliefs or culture, or or, or it was, was culture. It? Without, without question. And I just remember like a couple of incidents, you know, like I remember there was a wonderful female social, uh, uh, senior associate who I was working for in this firm and she had a lot of humanity about her and it wasn't uncommon for me to walk past her office really early in the morning and see her crying. Um, and, you know, in another incident we had like a really senior partner who came into, you know, there was a bit of a seminar for some of the new people and, and he, he, he was standing up the front and he said, right, well, I've, I've got this paper here from the St. James Ethics Centre. And what it said is, it says that, you know, lawyers should, should really give a thought to, to the social justice outcomes of what they're doing and should have a, 
you know, should have a, a view as to the impact of, of what they're achieving with, with advocating for their clients. And he held the paper up and he ripped it in half. And he said, that's a load of bullshit. You do what your client wants you to do and nothing else. And I think it was at that moment that I kind of spun around in my chair and I just knew I was in the wrong place. That's pretty stark, isn't it? It's interesting you mention mm. um, uh, the Vincent Fairfax Foundation. I remember I was on Groot Island in the, the late mm. 90s and we did some work with Simon Longstaff and the foundation with leadership programs. Mm. And, and I really I really valued the connection that he made with ethics in business and ethics in leadership. And you've, you've written mm. about kindness before. I mean, mm. like you said, I don't want to misquote you, but I think you said there's a lot of smart people in the world, but there aren't probably enough smart and kind people and mm. uh, just that powerful story that you just told then i mean there's something something wrong isn't there if uh, if we can't be effective in business but also recognizing the the need for empathy and, and kindness as well absolutely and i i also sort of think there's there's a really powerful question in there about the ethics and and whether the ends justify the means you know we have to people sort of think sometimes i think that you know, community sector organisations must all be perfect because we're all working towards good ends. And I think sometimes we really need to have a think about what cultures we're establishing within our own organisations, you know, um, about how to be kind, how to be supportive, you know, if, if restructures are needed, how do we do it in the best ethical way? You know, how do we, how do we promote healthy staff, even in environments where you know, not-for-profits are, are under the pump a lot of the time and under a lot of pressure. And I think, you know, we have to think about how we do that well, not just in serving our clients and our residents and, and, and our cohort, but we also have to think about how we protect our people in this sector because they're so prone to burnout. They really care. They're often social justice and mission motivated. And it's really easy for that to be taken advantage of. Yeah, and I think if I reflect back on my um, time in the um, in a in, in private business, private sector, um, we would never go up to any of our colleagues, even think to go up to colleagues and just check in and say, "Are you okay?" Uh, mm. That kind mm. of connection. Uh, it was it was not done, and I think um, we still got a long way to go in, in corporate Australia and in the government, um, business and private sector, and in on government community organisations. Know that also, just to I guess. Uh, um, be more connected with the people we're working with, with our stakeholders and our staff. Absolutely. I think it's an ongoing process of mindfulness about that stuff. Mm, yeah, fascinating. Mm. Absolutely. Um, now, you were given an opportunity uh, for, to have a stint at Elsie. Elsie uh, mm. is apparently Australia's longest running, um, longest established women's shelter. Can you tell us a bit about Elsie and, and the impact that had on you? Absolutely. Look, I think I think for me, so so yes, it is um, Australia's uh, longest running women's refuge. It was established by Anne Summers and a group of feminists in in the nineteen seventies when when the real wave was crashing in terms of what was then called women's liberation and and women setting up services for themselves. You know, rape crisis centres, women's refuge, women's health centres, women's legal centres, those kinds of um, initiatives. Um, and I think. You know, a lot of that spirit and certainly the necessity of the work that it does still remains. Um, and for me, where I'd always worked in the federal public service, um, even in the Commonwealth Ombudsman, where I was investigating government departments from the outside in, you're dealing with people essentially at arm's length. They might be at the end of a telephone or the end of a letter that you write or the end of a decision that you make and you communicate. And when I had the opportunity to manage Elsie, I had 
every piece of systemic discrimination that affects women and children right there in my face because your office is in the refuge. And so, you know, you've got the kids running past, the siblings chasing one another, the, the cornflakes scattered down the main hallway, you know, the shouting, the laughing, the, the one-on-one conversations between the caseworkers and the women who need support. You don't get to look away. And so it was really that opportunity that kind of lit the fire in me because it was at that point that I also realised in 2011 Australia, more than one in two women who sought a safe place were being turned away. And I was outraged. Like it really, it popped my middle-class bubble very firmly. You know, I think it just, the scales fell from my eyes and I realised just how much needed to be done in this space. We weren't really having a national conversation about domestic and family violence back then. You were lucky if you saw a a news article once every three months that even called it domestic violence and, and treated the subject with any level of sensitivity. In fact, we used to to share articles amongst the managers if we saw them and said, look, this journo did a piece and they talked about it well. And it was, of course, only a short four or five years later that we had Rosie Batty as Australian of the Year that really kind of crystallised domestic and family violence into the public view um, that, that did change a lot. But, yes, the, the LC experienced changed me right down to my DNA and just, you know, entirely gave me um, a, an overwhelming commitment to this work and, and to furthering it. Can you remember when you first stepped inside that door as, as, as a manager, um, and and must have wondered what you got yourself in in for, given it's just so different to anything you would have experienced before. Um, yeah. How did how did you feel? How did you feel at that time? And how well prepared were you for that experience? Um, look, I, in, in retrospect, I I went I I remember and here's something funny um, that I don't think I've ever talked about before, but I remember going there uh, about a week before I was due to start, and just sitting outside in my car. And actually getting really emotional and and just thinking, please let me do a good job here. Like, let me do a good job. If this is where I'm meant to be, if this is the work that I need to be doing, just put me on the, you know, universe, what, whatever, whatever, just put me on the path to actually doing a good job here. And the learning curve was rough and it was steep. And there were an enormous amount of challenges and I sucked every bit of knowledge out of that experience that I possibly could. Um, Good, bad, uh, you know, uh, neutral um, and, and really took that opportunity to learn as much about this space as I possibly could. And, and ultimately it set me in pretty good stead for when women's community shelters came along. Yeah. And did you have support then? Did you have a, a support network or, peers or colleagues that could help you because it can be quite isolating some of those roles in in our sector can't it yeah it they they can i mean look look leadership can be a really lonely journey um you know and i think i think particularly in the ceo you're often at the pinch point of two triangles you know you you're here and you've got your staff down here who look to you to set the support and the culture and, you know, the the mission of the organisation that you're leading. And up above you, you've got the board and the external stakeholders that, that you have to manage and wrangle and who also bring their own pressures to bear on you. So, you know, being, being the fulcrum of those two triangles can lead to a very, you know, a, a quite lonely role. And so I think those those external support networks 
are vital. Um, you know, I had I had them then. I had, you know, obviously trusted confidants both within the sector and outside that I could debrief with. Um, but you know, it was a, it was a steep learning curve. Um, but but one that, like I say, I, I sucked the marrow out of every moment in that opportunity to learn. Mm. It's interesting. Also, you mentioned that um, it was it really caused some outrage for you when you heard when you when you discovered, I suppose, that one in mm. every two Australian women presenting for shelters have turned away. What's interesting to me about that, and of a similar experience when I came to the territory, you don't really understand just how things and how challenging things can be until you're actually working in the space, living and breathing mm. it. Um, mm. and, and me too from middle Australia, we don't seem to really have a good grasp of that, do we, and to actually confront it with it, just how bad yeah. some of these things are that we're facing. Yeah, and, and I'm, not I'm not ashamed to say it actually made me angry. Mm. And I think, um, uh, you know, and you and I had the opportunity to meet at the, the amazing conference um, that was recently held on Larrakia Country in Darwin. And, you know, and, and, and uh, your comments around being angry um, you know, as, as part of a panel that you're on, um, really resonated with me. And I think, you know, when you see that injustice, when you see the inequity, um, if you're a person that, that is minded that way, it does actually, you know, start that kindling and, and get you moving towards towards making change. Um, I'm, I'm very much in favour of using that as fuel to purposeful action. And Annabelle, in terms of uh, that, that stint that you had at at, uh, at LC, mm. I think it was around twelve months. Um, mm. I understand. So, do you feel in that time it's not a huge amount of time, but still you absolutely immersed yourself in that experience and took the marrow out of it, as you said, which is just brilliant. Um, do you feel that you're able to leave a legacy there? Um, I th I think so. In the sense, uh, I mean that we we had some. The really disappointing thing was that was that about a year and a half after I left, um, there were some huge changes in New South Wales about the way that um, contracting was done. It was known as the going home, staying home reforms. And where the sector had kind of been funded on a hodgepodge model that, that wasn't really planned in any particular way, what happened was it sort of sucked up and redistributed all of the funding on a district-by-district district basis and it knocked out a lot of the specialisation that was in the sector, particularly around domestic and family violence expertise. And so ultimately, Elsie came out of feminist management for the first time in its history and was given over to, um, to a large church-based, organ a faith-based organisation to run. And in a sense, you know, the, the positive that's come out of that a decade later was it fired up public understanding in New South Wales about the vital importance of women's services and specialist services in the domestic and family violence space. And ultimately, that was the, the path that I took in growing women's community shelters later. So, you know, there were, there were absolutely seismic events across the whole sector fairly shortly afterwards, um, which, um, you know... It reminds me of the, there's a there's a saying that the Chinese character for disaster and opportunity is actually the same symbol, and a friend of mine talks about disaster opportunity, and I and and when I reflect back on that time, I think about that yeah. because it was terrible for uh, a lot of the services and the loss of services at that time and what had been established feminist practice. However, that disruption provided an opportunity for for a new niche um, new niche work to emerge and foregrounding the importance of that work in the response.
Fantastic. And in terms of the opportunity, you've you've moved to uh, Women's Community Shelters as CEO. Um, so for those of us who may not be that aware of of, um, of the organisation, uh, I take it then it has been established for some time beforehand. Um, or was it a new organisation? No. no, there was a really interesting story there. So when when I'd been um, when I was coming towards the end of my time at LC, I got this. I got a survey through from a new organisation that was being founded by a board, and the the board had just been set up, and it was Women's Community Shelters, and they wanted to get a, a bit of a lay of the land um, across the shelter sector as to whether there was a demand for more services and what what these standalone services needed. And, and so I'd, I'd answered that survey. And as a result of doing that, I got to meet with the board of women's community shelters that were a few interested people, some of whom had worked to set up an independent shelter in Manly in New South Wales. And um, as a result of a couple of those, those discussions, they invited me to come on board as the inaugural CEO of women's community shelters. And it was a startup. And at that time, I'd had to go back to my public service job because I was only like allowed a year's unpaid leave to, to pursue the LC opportunity. And so I'd spent the following year, 2012, pretty grumpy about having to go back to the public service and knew I would go back to this work eventually. And this opportunity presented itself at, at exactly the right moment. But it was also a huge fork in the road for me. Um, I had, uh, I'd just been divorced I was a single mother of two very young children four and two um, and I had the choice of my secure public sector um, career with a fairly assured career track given some of the indications that I'd have you know my leave my long service my 17.5 percent superannuation or I could junk all of that and join this startup charity with a desk and a phone and no idea if it was actually going to work and so I really, um, really took a risk there. Like, cause I'd also just taken on a city mortgage, which is absolutely no fun at all um, as, a, as a single parent. Um, and so I knew that I had bitten off a really big chunk and would now have to, you know, chew really fast. And so it, it was really a matter of um, head down and bottom up for the next couple of years. Um, trying to see whether there were communities around New South Wales who were keen to establish shelters on a model of community participation. Um, 10 years later, I can confidently say that the answer was yes, because we've now got 10 of them. So I, mm. I clearly need to update my bio. I was going to say, um, I'm sure that would yeah. have been out of date. When I was reading it, yeah. no, nah, there's more than that now. Yeah, 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 we've doubled that. Um, but, um, you know, that, that was a really, that was a really big step. And, you know, and it was a, it's an innovative organisation. I was working with um, an incredibly sophisticated board. It was like getting an MBA, MBA on the fly, um, working with, with some of the people who were involved. Um, and, and, and we took a big risk and it's paid off. I think it also shows important that we all do those surveys and return them. Yeah, you never know what might come out of it. Um, mm. But, but um, on a more serious note, I think um, how on earth would you even begin? Uh, it's interesting, you know, having that an, an immense challenge, really, as you've just described. You've got a, a clean, you know, you've got a supportive board, obviously, which is hard mm. for the, the start, I guess. But having that desk and a phone and 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 trying to assess whether there's, whether there's that demand and community interest. Mm. For those of us who might not know the model, uh, and probably myself included for that matter, clearly, um, mm. How, what does community women's shelters look like? How have you managed to establish these shelters? How have you begin? Have you began to get mm. those 
engagements happening in different communities? I mean, there must be so many different communities. It looks like you're a Sydney, Greater Sydney area-based organisation for now at least, but can you tell us a bit about how you went from essentially complete startup to the success that you've got now? Mm, um, lots of boots on the groundwork, that's for sure. Um, I think I think one of the one of the really key things about about what we did first up was was trying to figure out what our offer to a community would be. You know, who are who are we? What are we trying to be? Um, and I think I think we we identified pretty early on that that what it is essentially is a social franchise model. So what we can say is we very confidently now, and this this took a lot of iterating in the early days, but we do four things, and that is is that if there is a local community that has a couple of strong local champions on the ground that have identified, you know, through work in their community that that women are seeking their services and being turned away, that there is a need there. We will walk alongside that group of people to actually help them project manage a shelter into existence. And so that is all of the steps that you need to take to find a property, to build a board, to look for the ideal location. I obviously had the shelter manager expertise, so I knew how they should be laid out. I know, I know what policies and procedures are involved. We developed those. Um, you know, and we could give give all of that and essentially work in a capacity building way with the local community to make something happen. Because we know quite often, um, you know, and as, as you would know from your work, it's not a lack of will in communities to actually work on solutions. Sometimes what you actually need is the backbone organisation to walk alongside them. So project management is the first element. Um, we also said uh, funding. So if a community was able to fundraise $25,000 we would match that from the philanthropic funding weed source. And that would be our, our pot of setup money so that we could find a, a property from the private rental market or, you know, if we had a landlord that was prepared to give us something suitable at a, at a peppercorn rent, um, that, that would be our startup pot. And I would go to my board at that point and said, this community is ready to go. Can you give us the approval? And we agree to fund services. So on our shelter model, it costs about $400,000, $450,000 a year to run a shelter. We said we will underwrite two-thirds of that cost for the first two years and up to 50% per annum in years after that. And if you can find the sources to bring the balance, we'll do it together. The third element of what we do is all of the intellectual property that you actually need to run a shelter on a day-to-day -day basis because that's also often a barrier to setting up a new service or for anybody of goodwill who wants to get something moving is where would I even start? You know, what, what would I need to write down? How would I, you know, how would I make sure I was keeping the client safe? How would I make referrals? How would I partner with community organisations? What do my job descriptions look like? Do I need a computer system? Um, you know, how do I keep donors engaged? All of those things are part of the package that we offer. It's a little bit like a shelter in a box, you might call it, you know, um, the, the franchise piece that, that sits behind all of this. Um, and the, the fourth element that, that wasn't there at the beginning, but is certainly very much there now and what we're building every day and with every shelter we add is, um, is joining the network, being part of a larger family. So, you know, we provided board board training, governance training to, to new community board members. We provide ongoing best practice forums for the shelter managers who manage our shelters, child support forums for the child support workers who work with families, you know, any uh, fundraising forums for the, you know, for fundraising board members or, or paid employees of our shelters. So not only that we learn 
from our shelters at the front line and we provide them with knowledge, but that different locations can also cross-pollinate each other with things that they've found have worked for them. And so, you know, trying to engineer that, that continuous improvement, that continuous learning kind of framework um, amongst the network. And ultimately it's, it's those four things that, that did prove to be the secret sauce um, that seems to work for communities. And certainly everywhere that we have worked is a little bit different, you know, like um, Hornsby was the first place that this took root. We opened the doors on that shelter two, almost exactly two years after I started. And, um, you know, and that was quite similar to Manly in that in New South Wales, Hornsby is a bit of a transport hub. Um, there's a lot of services based there, you know, like Centrelink, Medicare, doctors. You've got big shopping centre. It's a it's a locus for train transport and for bus transport. And it's actually surrounded by higher socioeconomic areas, which have got things like good volunteering, good service clubs, people who are invested in their communities, the kinds of people who would put their time and effort into um, establishing a local service. And so they've we've we've developed this this kind of pattern of, of knowing what ingredients are going to be in a location to make it work. And over time, we've, we've kind of flexed the boundaries of that a little bit to give something a go. Um, but I think always being open to innovation and being open to, you know, to take some risks to create something good is something you don't often see in this space and something that's just incredibly wonderful to have permission to do in an organisation like this. That's a, uh, that's a fascinating story. And I'm wondering, being a startup as well, how you would attract uh, interest from donors and philanthropy in terms of the mm. outcomes that you're able to deliver. And and in a, in a situation like that, is it because um, you're able to, to demonstrate um, social outcomes or um, value mm. or, 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 are they, or are there philanthropists out there that just understand the, the value of this work and, and the ethics behind supporting it? Yeah, look, a little mix of both actually. We had some we had some startup funding from um, a couple of philanthropists, and in fact, the Vincent Fairfax Foundation was um, was a contributor early on, as well as the Hunt uh, Family Foundation. One of our one of our board members uh, made a contribution. Um, we also had access to some federal government homelessness innovation funding that was. Um, I think it was Labor Government 2011, um, and, and that was to essentially provide the frontline funding for the first shelter that we were able to get established on this model. So having a little bit of funding in the pot um, as a startup really helped to, you know, ensure that, that we weren't just focusing on fundraising to start with, but to actually gave us a foundation to kick off with the real work of what we were supposed to do. So um, that was incredibly helpful. And look, success breeds support. When you show people that you are uh, moving the needle and you can show tangible progress, then I think that becomes a really compelling story for philanthropists. And and fortunately, a lot of people who understand business um, understand our model. Like the, the people who I talk to um, who often have been quite successful in business have an intrinsic understanding of our model and the way that it works. Um, and so that that has been helpful over time. Can you maybe can you maybe share an example or a story perhaps of um, how you managed to come across or find these local champions? Because uh, mm. understandably they're really crucial to having that. You have to walk alongside the right people, I guess, or people mm. who want to, who are able to really, um, I guess, deliver 
uh, make mm. the contribution that they're that they're I guess flagging and are committed. Can you tell us about how you find have managed to find some of these people? Yeah, it's been fascinating. And and it's in the early days there was a lot of me going out and and sort of or actively look searching for you know for groups or for entry points within to a community that that might be right for this kind of work. Um, you know, probably from about shelters, um, shelters five onwards, people came knocking on our doors and, you know, there was some pretty compelling success once we got to about number four. Um, but certainly when I was starting out, um, there was uh, a former MP in Hornsby who was very passionate about homelessness issues and she was writing a PhD about it. And the the location had a homelessness interagency, which had I guess what I would say is some unusual members, you know, quite often interagency groups can, will have representatives of services, but this one in particular had rotary groups that were present and had seroptimists coming along, you know, people who were invested in their local communities, but part of, I guess, the civil society range of, of organisations rather than just service delivery orgs. And it was out of that group that, that we actually found a local champion who in the first instance was a man um, who who said he would take on um, the role of chair of that steering committee. And so, you know, in Hornsby, we, we built a nucleus around that group of fabulous people. In fact, one of the, one of the, the amazing men who was involved, Dick Babb, um, has done a lot of work in community in Hornsby and I was just corresponding with him on email yesterday. Um, in, in, for example, Foster, which is a um, community about four and a half hours north of Sydney, um, I actually saw a newspaper article. It was like the, you know, it was like the Taree Times or, or something or the, you know, the, the local newspaper. And it said, community desperate for, um, for crisis accommodation, you know, just, just a snippet in the paper. And they already had a housing action group. And so I made touch with, um, with the woman who was the head of the local neighbourhood centre there and said, hey, you know, this is what we're looking to do. Can I come and talk to you? And she did. She said, yes, come up. You know, and the first meeting, I'll never forget it, was was in this, you know, the little neighbourhood centre that you can imagine pretty much anywhere in Australia, which has a dusty back room where there's a fridge that sort of makes weird noises and there's, you know, there's there's teddies and donations and files and boxes overflowing and you're having the meeting in this room with all of these amazing local people. Um, and that's where that conversation started and less than 12 months later we had a shelter. Um, because that those people were already there. And that kind of story is replicated in every single one of the 10 shelters that we've established. And every one of those kinds of conversations is a little bit different, a little bit unique, but equally special and will always, you know, it's that's it's those little nuggets that that I just hold on to really tight and and dig out on the tough days because that's the stuff that really makes the difference, you know. It's um, those kinds of moments are Margaret, Margaret Mead, you know, a small group of committed citizens is the only thing that can ever change the world and I've watched it happen. Yes, that's amazing, isn't it? It is like the song, isn't it, from Little Things, mm. Big Things Grow. Mm. Um, in terms of, you mentioned um, before that, um, you know, the 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 shelters are a little bit different, say, between Hornsby and, and mm. Manly. Um, so I guess um, 
what, what might some of those differences be? I mean, are you trying to get the same sort of rules in place in terms of how long women are able to stay at the shelter before the, you know, other options kick in? Um, or does that, do they have a different look and feel when you walk inside the door? I mean, where are you looking at taking that, that business model? Because it's proven yeah. to be successful. Um, yeah. You know, I guess if the community <laughs> says they're interested, do you have, a, I guess, a preconceived view of what it needs to look like on the ground? Um, in terms of providing crisis accommodation, I would say yes. That's that's the you know that that is the model. We we you know in, in working with communities on this model. Look, that said, we we do we also do meanwhile use housing, you know, and transitional housing, which is something that evolved, you know, from some amazing work that my deputy CEO did um, in about twenty eighteen, and which which builds out our model. But I think the the really powerful thing is that we also learn from communities. You know, like Great Lakes, for example, said right. I can tell you what we're going to need here. We're going to need a women's and children's um, service. 50% of our clients are going to identify as Aboriginal um, and, you know, and most of them will be leaving domestic and family violence. And within eight weeks of the shelter being open, those stats were proved. You know, that was exactly. So listening to communities about what they need and who their client groups are going to be and, um, tailoring the expertise that we recruit is incredibly important to be able to deliver a community-based service. And but that said, you know we have some some baselines around best practice, around client management, around the computer systems that we use, and the way that we measure outcomes. But all of that, um, like if you looked at a shelter from the outside, you would never know that that there's sort of this intel piece that kind of sits underneath it. You know, I think of us like. You know, we are a bit like the processing chip that sits inside a computer, whereas you can put whatever name that you want on, on the outside. And what we're doing is we're helping that local service be sustainable and we're providing them support. So if they do have a crisis or an HR issue or a fundraising issue, that we are that safety net underneath that makes sure that, that the entire service isn't compromised because they've had a hiccup, which we know can be a problem for small standalone community organisations when they hit big roadblocks. So, you know, that was the other element of what we're trying to do. Um, so there's, there is there is flex um, absolutely in our model. Um, also to one of, one of my ongoing um, commitments and, and deep desires is to learn um, to walk alongside Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander organisations and community controlled organisations to offer what expertise we have um, if, if it is useful, you know, and if they want to make use of it. And I think that's an ethical commitment on behalf of my organisation. I think it's part of the broader strategy of reconciliation. I think there's, uh, I have a strong um, ethic around um, Aboriginal organisations being able to tap into um, more privileged white organisations in terms of our networks and our philanthropists and those kinds of things and perhaps um, you know, sort of grow some of those links there, if, again, if that's wanted. Um, and, you know, generally to provide what we have to communities and work with them in that capacity building way. Fantastic. And in terms of the, the journey, mm. what are some of the obstacles or challenges you might have faced? And have you had to say no to some communities, uh, I guess? <laughs> Um, look, the, the the real irony is, you know, is that we have to turn communities away if we don't have the funds to 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 do everything. Um, we proved up the model four times. We had four shelters operating 
um, before we were able to secure New South Wales state government funding. Um, <clears throat> and we sort of came in via a funny way, which was why the Office of Social Innovation, um, which was part of Treasury at the time in 2016. And, but, but you know, I, I had those, those few years of so many people telling me this was never going to work and it was a dumb idea and why was I doing crisis and there's, you know, I'd be much better focusing on this over here or that over here or, you know, and and I knew that, that the need was there. And I think some of the challenges, so certainly initially, were getting over those perceptions and the fact that people people were saying this is never going to work and and also being viewed with suspicion um, by existing services. You know, there's there's still... There's quite a patch mentality in, in public... In, in services sometimes. You know, a lot of people feel threatened if they see a new organisation moving into what they consider their patch to be. Um, you know, and I, I did have some confrontational conversations with people who did feel threatened. Um, but that's also the nature of being a disruptive organisation. And I think, like, my focus was relentlessly on the women and children who were not being served, you know, where one in two are being turned away. That is where my duty is. You know, I, I had to put yeah. organisational politics aside and just get on with that. So that was that was certainly a key challenge. Um, raising more funding was a key challenge. Again, the advocacy with, with government was a lot of chipping away and I've since found that, you know, often it takes that philanthropy and that risk capital to actually prove up a model first and demonstrate that it can work really well more than once before mm. government will get on board. But I also think there are reasons for that. Um Yes, yeah, so there, there were challenges early on, but I think once that success has been proved up and you can show people that the model works, um, we've had a lot more acceptance and a lot more willingness to, um, you know, to see the very positive aspects of what we do by getting, you know, the whole of society and the whole of a community involved in solving the problem. Yeah, and I know you've spoken before about some of the things that annoy you, like uh, ego being one of those things. And I, and I do think sometimes it is it is challenging, isn't it? You know, when we're in, we're all uh, working in a in a sector wanting to, I guess, make the best success out of the services that we're offering, and um, sometimes I think there's a, it's, it can be can be kind of possible to lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing if we feel threatened and that, or we're wanting to have one-upmanship or, or be too protective of our patch. And I think um, as a peak body and talking with government, it's really about delivering values and a public value. How can we do that by cooperating while we're in an environment where we're also competing for funds? I guess it's that classic term of cooperation, isn't it? We need to navigate exactly. that. But we have to focus on why are we doing this? It's for the, for the, for the people on the ground that need our help. Yeah, exactly right. And I think I think we also need to have a level of self-compassion around this kind of stuff because it really is those artificial circumstances of competition and scarcity which create a lot of the, you know, which which create the friction at the edges or which create the the challenges where, you know, it's I think I think it's human nature, you know, it, it, this this is in every sector of business and there's no reason why we should be exempt just because we're people that happen to be focused on social justice missions. But I think I think we're probably obliged to have a bit of self-awareness about it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and therefore the self-compassion about it and sort of look ourselves in the mirror every now and then and say, come on, you know, come on, Annabelle, get down off your high horse about this. Just, you know, re remember, remember to be humble and remember who, who you're actually doing this for. 
we all we all have our moments, don't we? Um, can I just um, uh, also just check in with you? When I when I visit your site on the landing page, it's a very powerful banner that talks that says what you mentioned before that one in every two women mm. um, are turned away, and and you have two case studies of women in different circumstances, but both equally really needy of a place to stay. Um, we've talked a bit about business and systems mm. and ethics and that. How do you make those tough decisions around who gets to bed and who doesn't? Do you have tools or priority mechanisms? How do you, you and your staff navigate that? It must be very, very challenging. Yeah, look, we generally do a risk assessment as to who's the most at risk. And, you know, and we would take that person and then scramble like heck to find them somewhere else to go, which we usually do manage to do. Um, but I'd be lying if I said these aren't the hardest decisions that we have to make. They really are. It's not easy. And I think when I go back to my experience at Elsie, that was really what popped that bubble for me. I was, you know, outraged. I couldn't believe that there were people who so desperately needed this help and it just wasn't available to them. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. And so our shelter managers make those kinds of decisions. You know, we, whenever we raise awareness around domestic and family violence as a society, people raise their hands for help. And I think that, you know, if we're going to do all of this job of raising awareness, I think I think there's a really compelling moral argument that we have to have the services available to catch people when they do say, okay, I need help, how, how are you going to help me? Um, and so while, whilst we do those assessments, we also move heaven and earth to find people um, alternates. But we also know um, that many, many women in, who are living in domestic and family violence situations won't leave unless they know they've got a safe place to go. We have had situations where there's been some publicity about a shelter, you know, due to be opening up in a week or two, and women have tried to put themselves on a waiting list for when that shelter is actually open because they're currently living in violence and they won't leave unless they're guaranteed a place. And so those are just the ones, you know, when we talk about the one in two figure, we're also talking about the women who know that they can ask for somewhere to go. So it's really the tip of the tip of the iceberg there because there is also a lot of, you know, a, a, a lot of experience out there of people who might be living in domestic abuse or coercive control but they haven't identified it as such yet or they simply don't know that these safe places are available to go to. So, you know, the awareness raising work that, that happens means that, that that we do have to make these choices and that's why... Um, you know, I'm so keen to see our network um, expand where, where it is wanted um, and across Australia because it does empower communities to respond on the ground to, to that help. And do you think in your state of New South Wales and perhaps elsewhere across Australia where we're starting to see any progress, uh, I mean, there's around exit points for women in shelters such as yours into more permanent stable housing? I, I know there's, there's talk finally of having more housing delivered under under the mm. federal government programs when that gets through the Senate and, and there's been recent announcements about each state and territory receiving a certain amount of funding, uh, housing rather. Are you seeing a, an understanding that, that that I guess, your clients are, are, a, are a clear priority cohort uh, for providing more options for women when they leave the shelter? Yes, and I think I think it's it's interesting watching the the political debate around the housing um, housing Australia Future Fund, particularly because um, I note when our Prime Minister was having a dig at the Greens for for refusing to do their part in passing it, he specifically mentioned women and children leaving domestic violence and how 
the opposition was holding up, uh, you know, the opposition to the bill was holding up housing for that specific group. So clearly they are viewed as a priority population for social housing, um, which heartens me in some sense. Um, also, I what I'm really concerned about, Peter, is the next the next couple of years. You know, we we just we really know that um, labour shortages um, are hitting hard. We know that there are construction delays. We know that the cost of materials um, is is going through the roof. It's going to take time, and to to get those builds off the ground. And I'm just. I, I view things through a really pragmatic lens because I say, okay, well, that, that's great, but what about those women and kids who need help right now? You know, what do we do? What are what are those meanwhile solutions that we can bring to light that will help us deal with those women who are asking us for help right now, right today, you know, this night, um, you know, unless and until we can get that housing built. So, on, on a three to five year kind of basis, I'm also really keen to see what tweaks can be made at both the state and federal level um, to encourage more meanwhile use of property that might be in the planning cycle. You know, I'm talking about aged care facilities that might take two or three years to get over the line with local governments because of who's around. I'm talking about um, developers having bought up properties because they're doing a big redevelopment, but they've you know, they've bought a line of things that they might not need a commercial rent return on for the next couple of years. You know, I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, ch church housing or, or a former pastor's house that's on a church property that with a little bit of love could be, you know, converted into uh, a suitable home for maybe two or three families, you know, with support. All of those kinds of options are things that I think we just need to make we need to flick the default switch on that. We need to say, let's make it easier rather than not for landlords to offer the properties into these kinds of arrangements because two to three years and an existing habitable residential property can make all the difference in the world for the clients that we serve. It's interesting, isn't it? I've, I've spoken before about NRAS being, you know, the end of mm. NRAS coming and those are properties mm. that are, I know there are issues with that scheme. It's not necessarily a perfect scheme, but there are houses in Australia's system that are currently designated as uh, being affordable and they're coming out of the system when we need more. Um, and there will be that that period of time that we do need to find some form of meanwhile stay or, or short-term accommodation to bridge that gap. So it is going to be a very rough couple of, uh, couple of tough couple of years. I'd just, uh, just like to finish, I guess, uh, Annabelle, if we can, in terms of some of these things that have been said and, and written about you and acknowledged in the, in the recognition you've had um, about your successful leadership and being a strong entrepreneur, obviously having empathy and, um, and being very um, driven by, uh, you know, getting, getting, getting in there and getting things done, so that high drive and achievement, but you're also an optimistic person. So mm. uh, in terms of um, people who are watching this, who are working in our sector, it's mm. it's tough. It's hard working in our sector. Mm. It's challenging. The, it can be quite harrowing at times. What advice would you give to people that are out there doing what they can, probably overworked? I know you've um, been in that situation before, working big hours, um, being busy. What sort of optimism or what, what words of advice might you give the people who are in our sector I might be wondering sometimes, look, am I making a difference or is it really worth it? 
Mm. My my advice would be firmly focus on what you can control. <laughs> and that is, you know, very much if you're on the front line and you've got that client in front of you, give them your full attention for the time that you're with them because that is the most powerful change that you can make. You know, the accumulation, the accumulation of that time that you spend with people making a difference in their lives will add up to something. You know, and I think I think for me, we you know we started out with 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 one shelter, you know, and then and then we consolidated that original manly one under our umbrella, and we had two, you know, and then a couple of years later we got our third and our fourth, and I think I think the the, the principle that I work with is patient urgency, and that is is that the issue that we are dealing with is urgent and it's important, but you know, we can address it bit by bit and it does add up to something over time. And so it really is a case of, you know, screen out the noise, screen out what other people might think about what you're doing. You know, there will always be critics. Every time you stick your head above the parapet to say something or do something, someone will take a pot shot at you. That's just part of it. But if you're firmly focused on the right things, which is the good outcomes, for the, for the group that you are there to serve, then just stay on that path. And one last question for leaders, uh, CEOs of our organisations mm. out there that might be listening or watching. Mm. Can you talk about the difference and what it means to you in terms of working in the business and working on the business? Because working on the business, mm. I guess, you've done a lot of that. You've had the boots mm. on the ground in terms of making things happen from startup, but you've also had mm. to do a lot of work with philanthropy, with governments and others. Mm. Can you talk a bit about mm. that and, and about growth? Because I think a lot of a lot of our um, organisations around Australia are so busy working day in, day out with, with, with what mm. they're trying to achieve on their mission, um, not necessarily... Uh, not necessarily having that much time to spend, to be frank, in terms of either growing mm. the business or, or can you maybe talk about that, what, what that means to you? Oh, yeah. Look, I think, I think, look, the hamster wheel of productivity catches us all and it's, you know, and, and I think one of the ways that I look at things in this sector, right, is that your job is never completed. You only pick the point at which you abandon it every day. Do you know what I mean? Like it's never completely done. And so you pick the point at which you abandon it and then just get back to it because the, the work will it will always be there and you will never, ever complete it. I also think it's really important not to make your job your whole hobby as well. Um, you know, it would be, I, I know that I would not be sustainable working in domestic and family violence and commenting on it if it was my whole life. You know, I often get sent papers which I probably should read or studies that, you know, or people saying, look, there's a play on it, the, you know, there's a play on it, the Sydney Theatre Company, its theme is domestic and family violence, you should go and see it, you know, it's on on Thursday, whatever. No, actually, I'm not going to read that, I'm not going to go and see that thing, because I have to put a firm boundary in place that says, right, after this is my time, you know, and that'll be my time that I spend with my kids, It'll be the time that I spend as a as a gamer, which I have been since I was eleven years old. I absolutely love gaming. Um, it'll be the time that I'm, you know, sort of taking a walk and looking at blue and green and mountains and trees and all of that sort of thing. And I think to your question, that's where the working on the business comes in rather than the working in the business. Is I often find your creative ideas, your stretch thinking, your strategy 
all of those dots that all of those dots start to connect that kind of give you that space and that give you the biggest perspective when you actually step out of it. And so I'm, I'm a firm believer in, um, in drawing a line and, and in, and in switching off and, and not making your job your whole life. It's, it's easy to do. It is, um, there's a very compelling argument for it, but you know, you, you, you really have to have some firm boundaries and ultimately that's what gives you, um, you know, that's what creates the space for the practice of, of the strategic thinking. Annabelle, thank you for your time with us on the couch. It's been a, a terrific conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I'd like to congratulate you and your board and staff on the on the great work you do at Women's Community Shelters. And I guess that growth trajectory which you've been on, um, growth sometimes can be um, have its own challenges, obviously, let alone doing what you're already doing. So I can only imagine how busy you and the team would have been, but making a fantastic impact, which has been recognised across Australia and um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege to talk to you and to be included on sharing the couch. So, um, so thank you very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to and watching Annabelle Daniel, Order of Australia Medal recipient, talking about women's community shelters and the great work they're doing down in New South Wales for women who are escaping domestic family violence. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do check out other episodes, hit the subscribe and like button. That way, apparently, uh, things like YouTube will recognise that people like to see our content and we'll send it out to more people so others can get to see it as well. But thank you again for tuning in and watching and we look forward to joining you again shortly. Bye for now. You've been listening to Episode 10, Season 2 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. If this conversation has raised issues for you or if you are currently experiencing domestic violence, call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Opinions expressed by guests on sharing the couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.